Hello, everyone, and welcome back to HOA It's a True Story. Today, our guest is attorney Alex Nolan of Nolan Law PC. He's speaking with us today on the topic of how HOAs should select their experts. Well, thank you for joining us today, Alex, and welcome to HOA It's a True Story. Thanks. Happy to be here. Also joining us today is our very own president of GB Group, Bill Mann. Hi, Bill. Hi, Reagan. Thanks for having me again. So, Alex, we like to start off our show kind of getting an understanding of who you are, what your company does, and a little bit about how you got into the HOA world. So tell us what's going on with you. All right, great. So I finished college and went uh, right to get my MBA, and I did corporate finance and real estate work for about seven years. And then when I was 30, I think I decided to go to law school because I wanted to change. So I went to school up in Portland, Oregon at Lewis and Clark. And my third year, I decided I wanted to get into entertainment law. I was going to work for a movie studio. So I decided to, <laughs> to move to Los Angeles right after law school, take the California bar and getting into the entertainment industry, especially when you're not from LA and don't have the background is a little bit challenging. So after law school, I kind of relied on my finance and real estate background and ended up working for a company that was like developing and selling shopping centers. And then, you know, the market went kind of bad in 2007, 2008. They were having to trim oh, yeah. down their, their legal staff. So I was looking, you know, for another job. And I saw a job for a real estate attorney in HOA law on monster.com. And so I didn't really know. I, I knew, you know, what a condo, it's like an apartment that you own, right? <laughs> so I, I had an interview with the firm in Los Angeles where I ended up getting hired and was with them in LA for about three years and then moved up to San Francisco, I think 2011. I worked, still working with them for about five years and then started my own law firm about five years ago. And so I'm based in San Francisco, but I work with HOAs throughout the state. You know, I'd say primarily probably Northern California. And I do kind of the day-to-day -day corporate counsel work. So reviewing contracts, opinion letters, homeowner violations, you know, board training, all of that sort of stuff. And this topic's really interesting to me, this expert topic, because a lot of what I do is advise boards on the business judgment rule and fiduciary duties. And so I think this really dovetails perfectly into that kind of context. Did you find that during the shutdown of COVID that your business went way up with people calling for general counsel advice? Yeah, it was it was surprising. I expect, you know, I talk with um, other attorneys at other firms that I'm friendly with about this, and we're all kind of surprised how much the work has increased during the pandemic. I think that all of these kind of projects and things that maybe had been thought about are on hold. Now everyone's home, everyone's noticing kind of the condition of the property and other things. And so I have done so many special assessment voting documents and CCNR amendments and construction contracts and bank loans. It just keeps going, which is great for business, right? But yeah, things have, have only increased. They haven't slowed down because of the pandemic. And that kind of leads us right into our topic about when an HOA needs to engage an expert. Is this something they need to solely rely on their attorney to help them do? Or is it appropriate for them to pursue hiring their own experts? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. So, you know, Association Legal Counsel is one of the experts for an association, right? And so there's all sorts of different experts. You could have the attorney for legal advice, the CPA for tax and accounting advice, the manager for kind of day-to-day -day management advice. And then you've got contractors like you all and architects and everyone else. And so sometimes if a board doesn't know who the right expert is for a situation they're dealing with, or if they just don't know 
what their options are. I'm asked that sometimes, or maybe they go to the manager, but I don't think that necessarily the attorney has to be involved. I'm happy to be involved. The one thing I think where maybe it's different is when you're in construction defect litigation. If you're with a CD attorney, typically they'll have certain companies they work with to do the destructive testing and the expert investigation, and there's work product privilege and all of this other stuff. So in the construction defect context, I think a board would rely probably more heavily on the attorney to engage or vet the experts than maybe in other situations. Well, let's go down that path of litigation for a second then. If they've worked with an expert in the past for some other reason, can they use that or request that of their legal firm to go with that expert? Oh, yeah, I, I think absolutely, unless there's some sort of you know, conflict, like maybe the experts doing work for the developer in that case or something. But absolutely, I think if the board has a preference for who they'd like to work with, they absolutely can make that known to their construction defect attorney or their manager in, in other realms. Absolutely. Bill, have you ever have seen, you seen the board's interview the experts that a construction defect attorney recommends, or is it typically just carte blanche? They just come along as a package deal. I think a lot of times it's a package deal. I, you know, I've been present in multiple situations where my clients are interviewing defect litigation counsel. Typically, there would have been some sort of preliminary investigation. So the defect attorney will bring in the expert that's done that. And that's just kind of who is used. You know, I do have some more, I don't want to say sophisticated, but maybe more involved or more in touch boards, like maybe in San Francisco, who are a bit more involved in what's going on and maybe they've done their own research or have their own ideas. But for the most part in defect litigation in particular, it's just, you know, boards tend to go along with whoever the defect attorney's recommending. Let's go back down the rabbit hole of who are the experts. We hear about design professionals because we're in construction. We hear that often. Right. Are they the same as an expert? Yeah, I think they would be experts, consultants. So your design professional, typically we're talking architects or engineers. So these are people that are putting together or companies that are putting together drawings, plans, specifications for some sort of ultimate work that's going to be undertaken by a contractor or others. And so they are a type of expert, just like the lawyer's a type of an expert and the contractor's a type of an expert. Bill, we know that the cities and counties are requiring more and more stamp drawings for repairs. So they may have an opportunity where the HOA has to sign on with design professionals for a non-litigation oriented project. Yeah, general repairs that we used to be able to get over counter permits for, like for like repairs used to be kind of the term that used to be used. That's almost extinct now. I mean, there are very few of the building departments that are doing that anymore. A lot of the building departments are still virtual where everything has to be submitted online. So you can't even go in and talk to anybody. So those are all asking for drawings, even on the most simple permit application. So I think the design professional expert is going to be somebody that the HOA needs to establish a very close relationship with going forward. Yeah, I had this happen recently with the building that I work with in San Francisco in the Cal Hollow district, which is by the marina. And they were doing a roof deck, you know, renovation remodel of their building. 
and they had their concept down and they wanted to pull permits and the city actually required stamped architect drawings. So they had to like pay the money to have all this done, not knowing if the city was going to approve the plans that had been paid for and stamped. And so, you know, I have seen this more and it's a little concerning, right? Because if you go down a path with a plan, you pay all this money to have the official stamped, you know, plans and they're disapproved, then you're spending more money to try and conform. Have you seen, or do you typically like, like in that situation, an architect designed something that it's disapproved by the city? I mean, are you starting to put language in their contract saying it needs to be approved by the city and they're responsible for any design changes if the city comes back with a no? Well, yeah. So some architects that would be built in as a part of the flat fee or the scope of service. Some are willing to do that, but they're going to charge an extra fee to do it. And so I think, you know, everything's negotiable. You can put in whatever you want in a contract that both parties agree to. It's just as the architect, what's the architect going to charge? Is it considered extra work or is it a part of the base scope? Would some of your HOAs contact you and say, we're getting ready to do this project, Alex, who do you recommend that we, what architect do we call? Or do you get asked quite a bit for referrals? I don't know about quite a bit. Sometimes I do get asked a lot about inspectors of election for the secret ballot voting procedure because we have these new election laws from a couple of years ago. And I guess that's a type of independent expert. But with regard to like painting, paving, roofing, a lot of times I think the boards rely on their management company who is familiar with different contractors or maybe have used those contractors for other HOAs that they manage. I think that's more the typical route. I mean, you know, I know everyone in the industry just like you all do for the most part. So if I'm if I'm asked, I'm happy to provide names of, of companies I know, but I don't feel like it's kind of a common thing necessarily. Do they need to go through some kind of vetting process like they would a contractor? Do they need to, you know, look at their referrals and references and licensing? Or are they pretty much, hey, you're an architect, you're good to go? Yeah, no, I think definitely there's a bit of, you want to make sure they have an active license and you can look that up on, you know, there, there's a state website where you can look up licenses on all sorts of different experts and professionals. So you want to make sure they're licensed. If they're a corporation or an LLC, you want to check with the Secretary of State and make sure they have an active and current, um, you know, legal status as the entity. And then there's the insurance aspect as well. What does the contract require for insurance and are they able to meet that requirement um, or not? And so there's a, a baseline vetting that needs to be done. Sometimes the management company will do that. If I'm reviewing the contract, sometimes I'm asked to do that. We're seeing- what Insurance are you looking for with your uh, like design experts? Yeah, well, design experts are a bit different than contractors, right? So for general contractors, we're always concerned about commercial general liability insurance because if someone gets hurt or property gets damaged, you want to make sure there's coverage. A lot of design professionals don't, you know, necessarily carry or feel they need to carry the same sort of level of general liability insurance because they're not doing physical work. They're more of, you know, in their office designing things. Maybe they're meeting with a board, but it's kind of almost intellectual property rather than physical work that they're preparing. So typically errors and emissions insurance is something you'd want your design professional to have. Workers' compensation insurance for anyone an HOA works with. And then, you know, the architect may be willing to have general liability insurance or auto liability, but if it's a deal breaker, as long as they have the errors and emissions insurance and the workers' comp, you know, I think overall an HOA is probably going to be protected. What kind of dollar level on the errors and emission insurance are you looking at? 
for coverage? Typically? Yeah, I mean, so a million dollar minimum, I think. It depends on the scope of the project. If they're doing $40,000 worth of plans for some roof rebuild, that's different than if they're doing $300,000 worth of plans for a $25 million project. So I think a lot of times insurance doesn't necessarily have to tie to the value of the work or the value of the project. But the, the more someone's doing and the more expensive it is, I think you want to, you know, increase your insurance to an appropriate amount. And boards can talk to their legal counsel about that. If they've engaged a project manager or construction consultant, maybe that person. And then, of course, their insurance agent or broker as well. Can you explain what the difference is between a general liability and an errors and omission for our listeners so they get what that means? Yeah. So general liability insurance basically is that when you're doing your service or your work, if what you're doing causes bodily injury to someone or personal injury or damages property, that insurance would basically pick up, hopefully, and cover whatever claim relates to the injury or the damage. Heirs and emissions insurance is something more for a professional that when you're contracted to do your service, if you don't do your service correctly or what you do with your service ends up being problematic or not compliant with the law for some reason, that's what it covers. So heirs and emissions is more about your trade work, whereas general liability is more about injury and damage that might happen because of just you doing whatever it is that you're doing. Okay, so I want to ask some questions about the type of experts. For example, with the current SB 326 balcony inspection, somebody can be an expert engineer, for example, but they're a civil engineer, not a structural engineer. Right. And so they don't perfectly qualify for that. But maybe the board or or HOA are not really sure how to find the right expert right. for what they're trying to achieve. Have you seen any of that going on where people are not sure about what kind of expert they need? Yeah, I've been asked that. So Senate Bill 326, the balcony bill, that is, you know, a hot topic and getting hotter because people are realizing they have till January 1, 2025. So just about three years now to get in compliance with the first of the nine-year inspections. So I have been asked that, you know, I think part of it's interpreting statute and statute says needs to be a licensed architect or structural engineer. So it needs to be one of those people. There's no, in my mind, question. I think the, the language of statute is pretty, pretty clear on that. So if the board needs to find someone to do that, they could talk to their attorney, their management company. They could talk to maybe a contractor they have a relationship with that they've done work with in the past. But, you know, with regard to that, it does need to be an architect or structural engineer. I don't think there's any room for, for deviation. So aside from construction related or management related, what other kinds of experts might an HOA have to engage? Right. So legal counsel for legal work, obviously, the CPA for tax returns and accounting. Some associations work with a banker or financial advisor when they've got a lot of money that's in reserves and invested. Then it could be, let's say you're doing uh, work on your stucco, maybe you need a waterproofing expert. So it might not be an architect or a contractor, but it's someone that's familiar with certain waterproofing techniques. I mean, it could be interior designers. I've had multiple HOAs I work with over the years. The building's 10 years old, 15 years old. They want new carpet and paint and sconces on the lobby walls and a new lobby desk for the concierge. But what is it they want to do? You know, they don't have the time or the expertise. So, you know, it could theoretically be there's all sorts of experts. So, you know, the list could go on and on. Any obscure ones you can think of, Bill? 
Well, I don't know, especially in San Francisco. I mean, there's all kinds of different experts, as, as Alex mentioned. There's elevator experts, there's pool experts, there's fire alarm. Life experts. safety system, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's a whole list of, of stuff that some of those high-rise buildings have to deal with. Some of them, even just refuge experts of how to deal with the trash sorting and disposal of recycling materials and stuff. There's all kinds of weird things. That they right, there, there's experts now. There's these companies that are helping They'll sign up with a property owner or an association and they'll review your electricity and your gas bills and figure out, are you being overcharged? Is the utility company doing something wrong, helping you to, to save money? You know, a lot of times with condominium projects, you have people living above and below each other and next door and sound travels. So acoustical engineers, people that can come out and listen to the sound and the noise reverber reverberation and figure out is this within normal building code limits, you know? And like like you said, Bill, pool expert. I have a, a number of buildings I work with have gyms and one of them in San Francisco has a huge gym. So they have an expert that comes out to help them with their fitness machines and where the pads go for the, the dead weights when they get dropped. I mean, you know, it could be all sorts of things. I worked with a HOA that felt that the developer did not give enough space for a park or community area for the volume of people and homes that they built. And so I referred them to an expert on master plan. He's a university professor that helped them with master plan communities and what is considered statistically accurate. So you're right, experts come in all shapes forms. and sizes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, Alex, for, so one of the things on the experts insurance, I mean, typically like with general contractors, we'll, we'll additionally insure the management company and the association. Do experts typically additionally insure the associations with their E&O policies or is that necessary? Well, it's always favorable, I think, right, for with my, you know, attorney hat on. But I think as a practical matter, there are, in my experience, as many architects and engineers mm -hmm that are willing to maybe carry general liability insurance or add the HOA as an additional insured as there are that are not willing to do that. And so there's always risk in everything you do, but I think the insurance and indemnification and liability issues with purely designed professional experts, there's probably a bit less exposure than with regard to your general contractor that's on site building stuff. That's not always the case, but you know, I do, in my experience, design experts tend to be less accommodating with insurance requests that, that an HOA may have. And then it's a decision for the board at that point. Are they willing to accept the terms that the architect or engineer will agree to? How about the reserve study? Is there something they need to be prepared for with their reserves for engaging experts or planning to? You know, that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, I think if you, and maybe reserve study, you know, firms or providers have different answers to this, but if you need to hire, uh, in my opinion, I should qualify, if you need to hire an architect or contractor or design professional to undertake work that's a reserve component, it would seem logically to me that that expert you need to hire or that consultant would kind of fold into the overall project cost and that you should be able to use your reserve funds for that. But I don't know, you know, generally speaking, if, if the reserve firms agree with that. I do know I've seen many times where associations will build a governing document amendment and rewrite project into their reserve study, which I have issues with because I don't think that's actually physical work. But I, I'm sure there are HOAs that do 
you know, reserved for consultant and expert costs. Well, speaking of the cost, they can be very expensive, especially when we look at some of the litigation experts. Holy cow. Yeah. What can an HOA do to help mitigate these expenses, if anything? Well, I think so. Obviously, bidding, right? I think just going with one uh, expert without looking at others is probably not the best idea. Um, you want to get apples to apples, bids or comparison. So same types of services from multiple different you know, whether it's two or three or four, so the board can get a flavor of, here's the different pricing. If they're all within line, then at that point, the board just picks which one they like the best, you know, or has the best background. If they vary and one is $100,000 cheaper than the other, then I think, you know, HOAs, money's not growing on trees. The only money they have is what comes from the owners. So cost can be a very important factor for a board. So I think the bidding process, getting financial bids, and then also the contract of, additional work and extra work. I always like to have cost controls in whatever contract it is where you've got your base services or base goods you're paying for. And we all know this is what's been contracted for. There might be other things that the expert will provide, but those other things need to be agreed upon by the expert and the association ahead of time and documented in some sort of change order or amendment or addendum just so that we don't have an expert with no cost controls and an HOA thinks, well, this is great. We hired the most economical expert and now they have change orders that are three times the base contract price. Good question on that. So if some of the governing documents require boards to get three bids for reserve items, would the expert also be considered somebody you'd need to get three bids for if you were taking the money out of reserves to pay for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen that requirement a few times. I don't think it's super prevalent in my experience at least not in newer documents but you'd have to look at the exact wording but if it's if it's so broad that any use of reserve funds or any expenditure over a certain dollar amount needs to be subject to three bids then the board needs to you know i guess comply with that and then look at amending their documents because they're probably old or not really written in the best manner the name of the podcast is hoa it's a true story and we know you have some good stories. Oh, <laughs> after doing this for 13 years, I have so many stories. And so, so one that I always, you know, kind of laugh about, um, it's a planned development that I worked with in the Central Valley, north of um, Fresno, and this was a number of years ago. And they were in a more rural area. They had um, kind of bigger, like half acre lots, but it was a planned development. I think they had a gate and they had CCNRs and they had a restriction on no um, livestock or farm animals. So on your lot, you could have, you know, domesticated dogs, cats, birds, all of that stuff, but, but no, no livestock or farm animals. So I got a call from the manager, or it was actually the board president. Um, she called me and said, we have a problem with a cow. And I said, okay, what's the problem with the cow? And apparently on one of the lots, they had a cow in their backyard and the lot was owned by a couple who leased it to their daughter and her husband and the granddaughter and the granddaughter was in high school or junior high and they lived there and so there's this random cow so we you know I, I wrote a letter to the the owners of the lot and said hi I'm the association's legal counsel you've got a cow on your lot please get the cow off your lot and then no response and some follow-up communication and then they moved the cow off the lot and they tied it to a tree in the common area by some picnic tables <laughs> <laughs> and the daughter was, I think, in 4-H or something, and it was some school project where, like, bring home a cow or something. I'm still not quite sure how this happened, but it was in the common area. And so, again, trying to be sensitive here, I don't want to steal the cow. There's liability, but the cow can't be there. I mean, it was, you know, going to the bathroom. She was out there milking it. I mean, it was a whole thing. 
And so I'm like, what do we do? And I'm like, all right, well, livestock sometimes gets on federal land. So what would the Bureau of Land Management do if they had some cow that someone put there? And I looked and you can impound a cow and then sell it for you know meat purposes. So we wrote a letter and said, if you don't get the cow out of the common area in seven days, we will be impounding the cow and it might be sold for, for food product purposes. The cow was gone within seven days. <laughs> and so, and then never, never heard of the cow again. And so that, you know, it's kind of a, an unusual funny story, but the, when this was all over, I was talking with the board president and I said, you know, wait a minute. So we know there was a cow, but how did the cow get there in the first place when no one's, I mean, you know, because the cow would have had to come through the common area and get in the backyard. And no one knows how the cow got there. They just know when the cow was there. So that's one of my my funny HOA stories. I, I, I have this perfect image of this young girl in the middle of the common area milking her cow. At the picnic tables, <laughs> yes. Yeah, with her FHA jacket on. So. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to appeal to everybody or exactly. ask them to pay for it. <laughs> Go to the fair and buy my cow. <laughs> oh, God, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alex. We really appreciate your time today. And if anybody has any questions or they'd like further information directly from you, do you have a website they can go to? I do. Website is noland-law.com. So that's N-O-L-A-N-D-L-A-W.com. Perfect. Or if they can't get you that way, they can certainly reach out to us at inquiry at gbgrouping.com. And we will be happy to forward your information on to Alex. So thank you again, and we appreciate everything and love the story. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.